Welcome to Black Health Matters. I'm Daryl Armistead, your host. This episode is a Zoom recording of Howard University group session led by Dr. Clive Callender. Uh, being, being functional as it relates to uh, responding, responding to the community and its needs. And they talk about changing the entire way it's operational. Of course, it'll take time. I always uh, wonder when they change one person, you only change one person and don't change the structure. You don't really change much. But anyway, it looks like they're going to have an overall change of the uh, CDC to try to make it more responsive to the community's concerns. The most recent episodes uh, revolved around the responsiveness to monkeypox and uh, the concern that although 98% of the uh, people involved are men who have sex with men, it's still a population that uh, uh, needs to be served. And also it starts with men who have sex with men, but then it goes from them, from men who have sex with women who have sex with women as well. And so it's a cycle that needs to be cut off at the head. So that was one of the articles. The second article is a, a great article on prescribing foods for a healthier life. And uh, uh, it, it talks about uh, the fact that uh, something we've talked about for quite a while, we've long talked about exercise, but we long talked about uh, one of the best ways to live long is to eat right. And uh, uh, it talks greatly about uh, uh, the fact, the benefit from uh, dealing with, uh, I'll read what it says, eat right, plenty of fiber, lean protein, healthy fats, whole grains, beans, vegetables, and fruits, and nuts, and seeds. And you reduce your risk for heart disease, diabetes, colon, colon cancer, dementia, and many other conditions. Uh, the emphasis on uh, Plant, 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 plant foods is uh, uh, not not surprising as uh, Daryl has talked about this ad nauseum, <laughs> almost. Uh, and uh, it, it talks about not only not only the the nutritional elements that are good for general, but it talks about specific uh, illnesses. Uh, those who have gout, it talks about uh, the role of. Uh, tart cherry juice uh, and uh, uh, how that uh, can help and that the one group of tart cherry juice uh, daily for four weeks will reduce the uric acid level. And it talks specifically about uh, avoiding alcohol, fatty meat, and sugary drinks because they aggravate gout. Anybody who has, has had gout recognizes one of the most painful conditions you could ever have. And it talks specifically about constipation. It talks about remedies being raspberries, artichokes, and chia seeds. Uh, and that uh, uh, one thing to do as you uh, uh, eat those is remember that dried fruits such as prunes and apricots can uh, be helpful. But they emphasize always uh, drink a lot of water with the fiber. Otherwise, you know, things could get worse. And avoiding fatty meat again, dairy products, as, as uh, 
Daryl has emphasized, and the refined carbs, refined carbohydrates. And then for insomnia, those people who can't sleep well, they talk about oatmeal and kiwi fruit as being uh, uh, products that uh, help overcome uh, the uh, people who can't sleep well. They also uh, recommend avoid drinking or eating foods with caffeine close to bedtime and also uh, alcohol uh, as well. And for those who are old and uh, men, old men who are old and uh, who uh, have frequent urination, they recommend pumpkin seeds, which we've talked about before for other reasons, and uh, indicated that research is identified as a source of uh, helping reduce the size of the prostate, which causes the frequent urination. And avoiding diets high in fat and red meat uh, uh, increase the risk. And then uh, finally, depression. Talks about uh, the foods to help with depression will be salmon, tuna, trout, and sardines uh, because they contain products that uh, uh, affect the brain and, and, and produce the omega-3 uh, products that help uh, uh, help avoid uh, or decrease the impact of, of depression. And they talk about avoiding uh, processed refined foods. And uh, uh, so these are just some of the uh, little tidbits and hints that uh, are in this article that talks about prescribing foods for a healthier life. Uh, we've talked about it uh, quite a while anyway, but uh, just to uh, reemphasize the focus on on the nutritional aspects as well as the exercises we talked about at Nostrum. Any comments? It's nothing new in any of those articles, but it's reinforcement of uh, what we've talked about. Uh, Dr. Callan, I have a question. Uh, I may have missed it when you talk about the first article that you found in the Washington Post about the monkey pox. I heard on the news that, uh, and you may have said this, that they're trying to, right now, they're trying to not characterize it as a sexually transmitted disease. Well, it is. Yeah. So it is. Uh, yeah, it is. But they're trying to not classify it as that. But it is. You can't not classify it when it is. And so I think that's the uh, Rainbow Coalition. That's Probably, but but I think that's not that's not accurate. I, it is a it's a, it's it's transmitted by many means, but the commonest way is is sex, and it's of course you can also be clean, unclean, and and touch people who who have uh, the lesions because it's not only transmitted by sex; it's transmitted by touching uh, people who have the the sores. Yeah, I was just wondering if you had seen that. Yeah, but I, I, but that doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> right. You, I, I, you can't uh, make a lie the truth, and I think it's important to recognize that uh, there are many ways of transmitting the disease. Sexually is one of them, but uh, there are many ways of transmitting. But that doesn't make it not a sexually transmitted disease. It is a sexually transmitted disease.
I have a question, Doc. Um, so with all these uh, suggestions for diet and exercise and everything, and if if we are conscientious about our, our health, which everybody here is, <laughs> of course. Um, <laughs> Who's that guy uh, behind Daryl? <laughs> How how often should we uh, get blood work done or see our doctor? You know, if 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 nothing's going on, if if nothing is is um, a problem, we tend not to see the, the 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 doctor. But some of some of the ailments that we can get are are, uh, are hidden, and they they don't have symptoms. How how often would you recommend? Seeing the seeing your 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 primary physician, so well, I, all, all, I only all, see mine. I only see mine once once a year on purpose to get a physical. Well, well, there are different reasons. For example, as we've heard talked about, the colonoscopy is important to get once you get over the age of forty. Okay, uh, uh, for the most part, uh, getting your eyes checked every two years is essential. Getting your ears checked every two years is probably essential. Uh, and then short of that, it's not a bad idea to check your blood pressure weekly or so to see what your blood pressure is. But seeing the doctor more than once a year, except for the routine, for example, uh, mammograms under the age of people who are under the age of 65, uh, uh, Annually, every other year is probably uh, okay. And uh, so there's screening things that you need to get anyway. But an annual checkup is reasonable. Okay. But but, but uh, there are other things that uh, you, you ought to do regardless of that. Because getting a mammogram, getting a colonoscopy, uh, uh, among other things, and getting your eyes checked and ears checked are things that you just ought to do and independent of seeing your doctor once a year. Thank you. Okay, then other questions answered, we can go to the uh, number of uh, articles that do we have. I have a question. How would, how would this affect a person that has a transplant? You know how you have to be careful with a transplant? What is the survival rate? Uh, how, what kind of effect would it have? Well, um, your question is is unclear. Uh, the advice we gave the advice we gave is for everybody, whether you're a transplant patient or not. No, but I guess because I'm talking about, say, for instance, if a transplant patient gets monkeypox or whatever case, how does if, that? If, if a transplant patient gets monkeypox, mm -hmm. oh, well, it's it's a uh, infection, and uh, transplant patients are more susceptible to infection than anybody else. And uh, so uh, it would be important as a transplant patient to uh, be sure that if you interact with people uh, that you wash your hands after interactions and uh, uh, wear gloves if necessary around people who have sores. Uh, uh, that, that would be my advice. But uh, uh, the transplant patients are immunosuppressed. As a consequence, they're more likely to be infected than anybody else. So they have to be more careful 
and wearing gloves is a good protection, uh, as well as uh, uh, we talk about uh, cleanliness uh, uh, being important. Okay, thank you. Uh, this is an interesting article because uh, uh, this is going to uh, be, be of invaluable help to those people who don't want to go to the audiologist and to, to admit to the fact that they have a hearing problem. Uh, and this then makes it easy for them to go to the uh, pharma, to pharmacy and, and just get it over the counter. Uh, uh, this, uh, uh, of course, the question is what kind of hearing aids are they going to make available? Uh, because hearing aids range in costs in hundreds of dollars to thousands of dollars. Uh, but I think uh, since the majority of people over uh, 70 have hearing problems uh, and don't do anything about it, it, this would be very helpful. We also know that there's an association of uh, hearing uh, disabled people in, and uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. And so uh, this will be very helpful. It's, a, it's a, uh, as you see the current price averaging more than $5,000, uh, typically are not covered by Medicare. And so this would uh, uh, make a big difference. So I think that this is uh, something that is very good for the, for the average man and woman. And so I think this is a, a nice step, uh, especially since uh, uh, many of the deaf people or hearing disabled people are, don't listen to their loved ones when they tell them that they need to get a hearing aid. You can't hear them. <laughs> yeah. So um, they're gonna have to have our, our extra security at the CVS. Well, that's what you would hope, but I, <laughs> we shall see. I hope that's the case, because you'd like to have a lot of people taking advantage of it. Uh, but uh, we shall see. You know, my my audiologist uh, made the point when I was asking how come you know they cost so much. Uh, she said that they they are tuned specifically. I think Daryl knows about this too. They're tuned specifically to your hearing profile when when you get your hearing test and you see which frequencies are deficient in in your hearing your the ones that cost three or four or five thousand dollars are tuned to you if you go into a gross uh, uh you know the, the the giant pharmacy and uh you know those things are are I, i'm i can't see how they're gonna be able to specify the frequency uh, response and you know settings on on those uh, hearing aids. You're, that's a good point, and that's something that uh, uh, was one of the reasons why it was not over the counter before. But because there's so many people who uh, don't take advantage of it because of the price, uh, they have done this to try to make it available to the guy who can't afford a five thousand dollar. Dr. Callender, isn't that the same thing as glasses? Um, people go to CVS to get reading glasses rather than going to get their eyes checked and get the right prescription because of the cost and convenience. 
I don't know why people do that because uh, the cost of the, you know, the, the cost of glasses in the drugstore is what, about $20? Or less. Yeah, and you go to the doctor, it's going to be about $200 or $300. So, so it may be similar. Uh, and uh, yeah, it may be similar, maybe. You still, still people go, still go to see their eye doctor and get prescription glasses. But the availability of the glasses over the counter allows more people to just go and pick up whatever magnification they think works best for them. So I think it's a good analogy. Here's something that most people don't realize is that hearing tests are generally free. So uh, any hearing aid place, um, you can make an appointment and go get your ears tested for free. You know, because they're trying to sell you the hearing aid, and so there's no charge for the actual hearing ex exam. Um, when you don't hear, you don't have good conversations. Um, and when you don't have good conversation, your brain kind of fogs up, like cobwebs set in. And that's the start of dementia, just because you can't hear people, so you don't talk, and your brain just fogs over. So uh, they recommend people over 50 um, every year if they get an annual hearing hearing exam. Uh, what I found out, you know, I've got a, I've been wearing hearing aids for a couple of months now. And um, there's all different levels of hearing aids. Some are bad. Uh, some are excellent. Um, the more you pay, generally the better hearing aid, the better hearing experience, the more natural it's going to sound. But even the bad ones are better than not being able to hear. Uh, so, you know, the prices can range from uh, online hearing aids uh, that you buy a pair for 300 bucks. They're the really terrible ones. You can go to Costco and uh, their bottom of the line is about 1300 bucks. Or like it says, you can get the $5,000 pair of hearing aids. I got top of the line. You know, I, I tried uh, the variety of, of, of hearing aids and um, you have to pay really decent money to have a natural hearing experience as a musician and recording engineer it's important for me to hear naturally so you know i, I kind of bit the bullet and paid big bucks but um if you're if you're with somebody that's got a hearing in, uh, deficit don't let up just keep your foot on the gas pedal until you get them to uh, an audiologist a, a hearing instrument specialist to, to do something about their bad hearing because their brain is going to fog over and, um, you know, they're just a, a pain in the butt to you and everybody around them. <laughs> well, I, I think this last paragraph says it all. Uh, among those over seven with hearing loss, only one in three have ever worn uh, hearing uh, aids. So so you can see that the need is great, as, as John Tatum suggested, uh, or because that uh, uh, the need is great. Now, will the people who need it the most do what they need to do, time will tell. Let's let's hope that uh, this does cause uh, a commotion at the uh, uh, pharmacy, pharmaceutical places. Uh, this is a, uh, an article on, uh, uh, you know, this is National Minority Donor Awareness Month. And uh, as, a, as a consequence of the shortage of organs, uh, 17 people die every day because of the shortage of donors. And so uh, since we have uh, 
over 100,000 people who wait, and we only have uh, 40,000 transplants a year. You can, six, you can see so many people are waiting. And so the need for uh, ways of getting more organs is, is really desperate. And so one of the ways of addressing this is by having uh, xenotransplantation and uh, uh, stem cells and uh, other ways of, uh, uh, and 3D printing is, is, a, is a way that eventually will come to be one of the sources of organs. Uh, when that will be, maybe in the next five to 10 years, but it certainly is uh, uh, something that uh, is becoming closer and closer with time. They're printing uh, uh, bladders, they're printing uh, ears, uh, and, and next they'll, eventually they'll be printing organs. When will they be available? Uh, who knows? Uh, uh, I would imagine within 10 years. What material are they using? Are these plastic organs? No, 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 no. The organs, they, they should be vascularized tissue. They should be actually tissue that is used to uh, make the, the uh, organs so that uh, they have to be done from vascularized tissue. And that's uh, uh, the problem. At Wake Forest, they've been doing this since 2005, uh, but uh, doing it for tish, tissues and other tissues that is a tissue, uh, and, and so uh, we don't think as much of it as an organ, but it's, that has been done for quite some time. But doing it for organs like the kidney, the liver, uh, lungs, that, that's gonna take uh, a while longer. What's the source of the tissue? We, that, we would be the source of the tissue. In other words, whether it comes from a uh, uh, whether the organ comes from a, uh, it would be another human being. Yeah. Sounds like science fiction though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's something that is in the works and there are many places that are doing uh, research on it so that we think that it's likely within the next five to 10 years, it will become a reality. Dr. What Calder. Uh, What'd you say? Tissue is one of the many things that can be uh, recovered from um, deceased donors. Is that correct? I didn't hear the first part of what you said. Uh, tissue is one of the things oh, that can yes. be you as transplants. You know, tissue, not yes. tissue, and so forth. Yeah, tissue is easier than organs, right? What is vascularized tissue? That tissue that has blood going through it. Okay, thank you. That's what it means by vascularized tissue. Uh, uh, so, for example, the bladder is not not as vascularized as many of the other organs. So it's a lot easier to do that than to do a kidney or or lung or liver or heart because they are truly vascularized and a lot of circulation through it. And that's 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 the uh, area that is uh, difficult to replace so far. So rather than asking to donate an organ, they'll be asking to donate tissue? 
No, we, we'll be doing both. Okay. We're doing both. Uh, the tissue is one thing, the organ is another. Uh, right now we ask for organs and tissues and uh, tissues made a difference in terms of how rapidly many af athletes recover from surgery because they have uh, a donated tissues from people who've died and left tissues behind. Uh, uh, but the difference between those and the uh, organ which is, has blood supply going through it, uh, like the kidneys, the lungs, and the heart, is that uh, the circulation of those organs is critical, whereas for tissues, you don't need blood going through. Okay. So this is the where the future lies. Uh, any other questions about that? Because I think it's a, uh, especially since this is National Minority Donor Awareness Month, it's good to uh, address some of these uh, issues relative to transplantation and, and the donor shortage. Okay, this, this article is an article that I thought was interesting because uh, when it looks at uh, the key heart repair gene, it turns out that uh, uh, steroids, which is important uh, for preventing rejection, uh, is, is partially responsible for the heart not being able to recover from a heart attack. And they are saying that uh, when they use medication that prevented the effect of the glucocorticoids, then the heart was better able to recover from the lack of circulation. And so uh, what they were able to determine is that uh, generally, whenever you get sick or anything happens bad, steroids help you. But in this situation, the steroids uh, actually prevent the heart from uh, recovering. And this is a brand new finding that uh, uh, may uh, help uh, people who've had a heart attack uh, recover more quickly from the uh, loss of circulation to the, to the area. Because what happens now is when you have a heart attack, the uh, area that loses blood circulation, dies, and you have fibrosis. And that, that means connective tissue there, but not muscle. And, and this then means that your heart doesn't pump the blood adequately. And eventually the low circulation leads to uh, congestive heart failure and, and also to, to death of the heart and uh, uh, death of the person, so. So this is a little complex, but I'm just trying to oversimplify it by indicating that uh, what they're finding is that uh, the gene receptor uh, for recovery uh, is blocked by steroids. And this, this gene receptor, uh, if the steroids are blocked, may lead to heart muscle recovery. And that's, of course, the, the issue. Sir, uh, Dr. Callender, does that mean that they would still give the steroid, but uh, given the, the blocker, you, you'll still be able to, to avoid the, uh, the negative effect on the heart? No, they would not give the steroid. They give a steroid blocker. 
because in other words, they wouldn't give steroids. In other words, naturally, you have steroids produced. And it's the steroids that are produced because of trauma and shock that uh, go to the area and block the heart from regenerating. And so then you would just give this steroid blocker to the heart and that would uh, allow the heart to regenerate, which it can't do because of the uh, presence of the steroid. Oh, I, I didn't know that the, the body makes steroids. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. oh. Yes, yeah, the, the, the flight, the flight and uh, phenomenon when you have, whenever you're stressed, your body, your adrenal gland creates steroids. Uh, because uh, whenever you have any stress, steroids are produced. So this then uh, would be uh, a way of uh, uh, negating the, the natural impact of steroid that is ever present. Yeah, the adrenal gland is the source of the steroids, the natural source of steroids. Very interesting. Okay. Uh, now this is a subject that is becoming more and more important. Frailty. Uh, and uh, I guess it's important to understand what frailty means. And, uh, and, and frailty means that uh, there are five categories that make you frail. One is that you have unintentional weight loss. Second is that you uh, walk very slow, if you can walk at all. Uh, third is that uh, uh, you uh, do not exercise. Uh, and uh, this then, these then result in you being considered frail. And the, the reason the category becomes important is because people who are frail die more often with any procedure, but they die even more often uh, with uh, low-risk procedures and high-risk procedures. Uh, so if you exercise and you haven't lost weight and you, you can walk reasonably quickly, uh, then these point to the fact that you could have uh, low-risk surgery without much expectation of morbidity or mortality. Whereas uh, if you're frail, then it's unlikely that, that you would survive any kind of operation, whether it's a minor procedure or a major procedure. And so it, 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 it goes back to what we talked about initially, uh, eating the right foods, exercising, all of those things keep you from being frail and fragility is probably uh, associated more with aging uh, than uh, with anything else. And so, which is why it's, it's so important after the age of 40 to be involved with exercise and proper nutrition because uh, uh, frailty results in falls, falls uh, cause uh, fractures and uh, other things like that so that uh, so I thought it would be a good idea to just include this so we'd have an idea about frailty. Uh, and so uh, you'd under, have an understanding of, of if you're going to have surgery, what are the things that uh, uh, would be associated with a, a better income? And 
eating properly, exercising, walking around, and other things are associated with uh, 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 better outcomes for any kind of surgery that you're going to undergo. So do you have to have all of those things to be considered frail or just one or two or? Well, generally the more you have, the more you are likely to be considered frail. The less you have, then uh, the less likely you are to be if, if you have all of them, then, uh, then you are frail, uh, fragile and uh, uh, it is advised that you become uh, not fragile if you're gonna need to have surgery. I guess I asked that because my thoughts about someone being frail is some small person that, you know, but you don't have to really be small to, to have those different. That's correct. Mm -hmm. You could be obese and be, yeah. be fragile and frail. Yeah, but you, we traditionally tend to think of that as somebody, of course, that person who you speak of is likely fragile as well, frail, yeah. uh, but you can be obese and be frail. frail. As well. Okay, yeah, that, that's what I had concluded. That's why I was asking the question. Mm -hmm. Sitting here talking to him. Mm -hmm. Now this, 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 uh, uh, article may, be, may, may bother Carol more than anybody else uh, because uh, she doesn't like terms, aged and aging. And now they got a new term, super elderly. <laughs> it's bad, not bad enough to be called old uh, or elderly now, super elderly. Uh, and they so they call people who 85 or older, uh, super elderly. And uh, they say, this is a, uh, group of people who have, have to be, uh, be, uh, be very careful about anything that happens to them. And uh, they talk about uh, the fact that uh, surgery or anything that is done is uh, uh, likely to be associated with increased complications, unless of course uh, they are uh, free of, of, of comorbid issues. And uh, what they're saying, as you get beyond that age, uh, you're more likely to have cardiac issues. Um, and uh, of course, uh, uh, we all know that there, there, there are many kinds of conditions that cause heart failure, including arteriosclerosis. And then of course, the one that is more likely to cause death than anything else is arrhythmias, uh, which are, occur, the older you are, the more likely you have that. And then aortic stenosis is, is uh, another disease that occurs more often as you age. And then of course, the, the thing that is associated with more deaths than anything else in the elderly population is falls and hip fractures. And uh, so that uh, uh, this is uh, something that, uh, is feared most of the elderly or super elderly patients that I know of that die that don't die from cancer, die from complications of falls. Uh, uh, Dr. Callender, uh, excuse me. Um, can you just go back one? Uh, stenosis. What what does that mean? Oh, that <laughs> means the, the 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 aorta is the largest blood vessel in the body, and when you get 
arterial stenosis of the aorta, it narrows. And when the aorta, the big blood vessel narrows, then you get hypertension and many other complications and also poor circulation to the heart. And this then is something that if you have it, actually requires surgical intervention. Yeah, Dr. Kalenda, are, yeah. are there any guidelines uh, under which an elderly, fragile person should undergo surgery? Yeah, when, when they are uh, not fragile. In other words, if they can walk on their own, if they can, uh, if they're not losing weight, if they are uh, uh, exercising, uh, th th this then, so that the, the way to uh, uh, avoid being fragile is to, is to be active. Uh, and uh, uh, also to eat, eat appropriately and uh, be active. That's, that's the way you address the issue of fragility. Dr. Callender, what is elderly? What's the age for elderly? Elderly is probably from uh, 75 to 85. Okay, so I'm not elderly yet. Yeah, you're probably a senior. I'm just a senior, okay. <laughs> and the super elderly is 85 and above. <laughs> and so this article is just saying they've analyzed why people die, because people do die. So well, these are the different various factors of why we die. There's nothing really you can do to prevent from dying. Yeah, yeah, I, I, we started off by talking about that. Eat proper and exercise. But even after you eat proper and exercise, you're still gonna die. Oh, well, yes, you are, but I mean, okay. Well, we're all like dying, so that, so far, nothing has prevented uh, mortality. So immortality is not part of uh, our gene product. Uh, so everyone who is born will die except for the exceptions that we know of in the Bible. But uh, uh, yes, so, uh, so yes, answer your question. Yes, all we're doing is delaying a death and not preventing it. We have no, no way of preventing death right now. So if you're fragile and you need surgery, they won't give you the surgery because you're fragile, but then you need the surgery, but you can't well, have you did, it. So well, you no, can't prevent you, your inevitable death. Well, no, what you do then is, is get away from the category of fragility. So you have to exercise proper nutrition and, and no longer be fragile. So it's, it's, it's the prevention of fragility which uh, is the issue. Uh, but, uh, but as you point out, we're all dying. It's just a matter of what you die from. But anyway, the, still, uh, the, the goal for many is to try to live as long as possible, as uh, qualitatively as possible. Um, Dr. Callender, one more question. Is there a law that have to say that you got, everybody has to, um, be analyzed to see why they died. You know, it used to be somebody just passed and you didn't analyze what did they pass from. But so now the first question, after you hear someone pass, 
why did they die or what did they have? You got to analyze each and every death. Is there a law that you got to do that? That's not true. They, they do not have to analyze each and every death. They have to analyze deaths that uh, occur when there's no reason. For example, if somebody's been sick for a long time and they die, you don't have to have an autopsy. But if you have somebody who has been healthy and they suddenly die, then uh, there's going to be an autopsy. Find who out pays what. for that? Uh, usually uh, that is done by the uh, uh, by the DC, for example. Uh, the uh, They have the pathology department. Uh, and so uh, for every death that is unexplained, uh, they they do that. Uh, I'm not sure how the costs are, are, are allocated, but that is done irrespective of your ability to pay. Mm -hmm. I, I know when my mom died, Carol, he, she was up in age, had heart trouble. She died at home, but um, there was no autopsy. They never mentioned autopsy. But contrary to that, when my daughter passed, um, she was young, no problems that they knew of, but they did perform an autopsy. But and, and, they paid for it. I didn't. <laughs> right. And that's exactly the way it goes. Is if you die from natural causes, that's what they call natural causes then you wouldn't need an autopsy. But if they're not natural causes, then they would do it to make sure that you were not murdered. That's what they said about my mom, natural causes. Yeah. She was 97. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> true. Yeah. But you can die from natural causes being young. Yeah. Then they need to identify, and that's why they do the, that's why they do autopsy. Yeah. on younger people who have no have no illnesses mm -hmm. that's exactly right uh, this this is an article on uh salt substitutes which are usually potassium containing uh medications and it, it this points out that uh salt substitutes really help people maintain their proper blood pressure and uh Maintaining the proper blood pressure prevents uh, cardiovascular issues, strokes, and heart attacks. And uh, this is all related to the salt, which we've talked about salt and sugar as being uh, uh, causes of mortality. And so the salt substitutes, often potassium, uh, are uh, result in having a normalized blood pressure, which of course is uh, important to avoid uh, arteriosclerosis and strokes. And so for a while, people uh, took salt substitutes but weren't as sure whether it was helping or not. But this article points out that you have a reduced risk for mortality when you use salt substitutes. Wasn't there a long time ago, um article that said salt substitutes were bad for you and not to use them? I'm not familiar with that article, but uh, there's always been discussion about the the role of salt substitutes. Um, but uh, most of the evidence indicates that salt substitutes have of great merit. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that conversation may have been about sugar substitutes. Yeah, sugar substitutes, probably. Yeah. No, I read somewhere about like Miss Dash and all of that, and they said don't use it. Well, um, the general feeling is that salt substitutes are of merit and that uh, they're very helpful. Any other questions about that? Because um, it's important because I think the concept of uh, salt substitutes in contradistinction to the sugar substitutes, which is another issue. Uh, now this article because I thought it was a good one because there's been a lot of talk about <clears throat> whether or not doctors should accept gifts from patients. And in this article, they talk about uh, how a doctor so on a scuba driving trip and somebody had seizures and he helped and they gave him a present. And the, the present was very nominal, cupcakes and flowers, which are uh, uh, pretty nominal. Uh, but the issue that comes up is if they come up with gifts that are just like an like a airplane or a, <laughs> or a car or a boat or something like that. And, and uh, I think this is uh, becomes a, a different issue uh, because uh, one of the things that I, I learned when my trip to Africa, uh, that uh, sometimes accepting or not accepting gifts has important cultural issues and uh, not accepting a gift uh, may be uh, an insult. And so, uh, uh, so if it's a if it's a minimal uh, gift, then it's probably not a problem. But when it gets uh, uh, to the point that uh, it's uh, more than uh, something that's uh, fifty to hundred dollars, then then uh, that's called an uh, it's not a modest gift, and that uh, uh, involves a. Uh, conflict. And so they're suggesting when they, something like that happens that uh, uh, you should do, decline it uh, uh, with uh, uh, a good explanation. And see, this, this idea characterizes a value of greater than $25 or $100. Uh, and I would think that the great, gifts greater than that probably uh, may get you to uh, talk to the patient and tell them why you uh, cannot accept it if possible. Dr. Calder, have you received many gifts? Yeah, like uh, sweet potato pies, apple pies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, very inconsequential gifts uh, like that. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing uh, huge, uh, yeah. So. Then I feel terrible because I don't know something. I was uh, maybe I've been programmed the wrong way. Uh, I just thought that doctors were rich, and I didn't realize that they would accept gifts. Um, I don't know. I've I've never given a physician uh, a gift. Thank you. It's a great gift. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and I'm indubitably grateful, and I say thank you and everything, but That's a monetary That's a great gift. gift. And I was just wondering how many on this panel have actually given a doctor a gift. 
Um, I've, I've never done it, but uh, I know there's labor department rules in regards to like union leaders, which the same thing applies as far as uh, you couldn't, ex I couldn't accept a gift of over $25 because you, now you can be accused of showing preferential treatment towards a contractor or whatever. So uh, they, um, if, you, if you received anything over $25, you had to report it. I was getting ready to say that same thing. Yeah. But I'm talking about actually giving your doctor a gift. Anybody on this panel has actually given a doctor a gift? I've never. No. I've never uh, given a doctor a single gift. Other than thank you. Thank you as a gift. Thank you. Um, so, I know Dr. Callender, yeah. I want to hear for the rest of them. I know we say thank you and some doctors are more grateful than to others. So but, I'll I was going to say, so uh, my kids' mom, uh, when in, in uh, labor and delivery, uh, when she she was really impressed with the nurse who helped us deliver the second child. And uh, and I found out why, too. Um, it's, be, it's because of, like, the, the oxytocin hormone, um, you know, the bonding hormone, especially when, when women give birth, um, especially natural birth. Like there, there's a there's a bonding that happens not only to the child but you know to, especially to everybody who's in the room that's surrounding and loving. So she just felt really, um, I guess, uh, what's the word for? It? She felt really inclined. She felt really obliged to kind of give the nurse who was really nice to us something. I forgot what she, I don't know if it was like a teddy bear, a card, or something like that. But it was but that was the closest that like we've ever given to somebody who's like been good to us in healthcare. And that's the kind of gift that, you know, is reasonable. A uh, card or a teddy bear, those, those little, little things like that are easily acceptable. Yeah. Now, what I have done with my brother and with my mother is I have given the ward that uh, my mother was on, like a box of candy or a box yeah. of cookies to thank right. them for right. their, um, their care for my mother or my, and my brother. But and, not, and those nothing are, to a doctor. Those those are the kind of gifts that are acceptable. You know, they're, they're not they're minimal. Box of candy, those kind of things. Uh, it, it, it makes you uh, consider something you may not have thought about. You know, uh, we we gave a um, uh, like a snow globe, you know, to uh, a therapist, and uh, you know he. He was uh, reluctant to take it, you know, and uh, I, this article, you know, m makes it understandable why he was uh, hesitant to, to receive a gift from us. Eventually, we, we, we twisted his arm and forced him to take it, so, and he, he, he did receive it. Okay, well, it's, it's good, interesting. Um, uh, yeah. Well, I was okay. just wondering, are there some some cultures that give gifts more than other cultures? And are we taught that? I, I you know, that's still amazing to me. I know as a teacher, I would get perfume. I still got a dresser full of perfume that I need to throw away. You know, they give us perfume and stuff like that. And you say nice and have gotten cakes and pies. Yeah, it's nice. So. I never thought about a doctor. 
I know one time John was indubitably grateful to a nurse for, you know, during her help and everything. And he volunteered to take care of her newborn because she was a single parent, a newborn or oh, a baby for overnight when she had a 12 hour shift. So that's that a nice thing. Nice, that was a nice experience. A nice present. Yeah. Okay. Again, I, I think uh, it depends on the the financial status of uh, the giver, the person giving the gift. For instance, in Africa or in my country where most of the people are poor, they hardly give any gifts of any amount or any value. The only thing they say is thank you. It depends on the, the status, financial status of the giver. You know, most of them are poor. They can't afford, you know, even one square meal a day. Where will they find the money to buy an expensive gift or even a, a teddy bear or a card? So okay. it depends. Thank you, it doesn't cost anything. So, yeah. I'm reading an article from National Library of Medicine where it says doctors often accept gifts from, from drug companies. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true, but that doesn't mean that they should. Right. And that's why this article was about it, because that has now become illegal to accept uh, gifts above certain. Uh, but there was a time when that was just automatic. Uh, that the law has changed on that now. By the way, I got an idea why those doctors were getting gifts from the drugs company. Uh, they they wanted them to prescribe their drugs. Of course, okay. right. Yeah. Of course. So the other side of the fence, though. That's why it's illegal. Yeah. The, yeah. I was getting ready to talk about the other side of the fence when it's illegal for a doctor to uh, get a gift because he let somebody have a whole lot of oxycotton or something. Well, that's illegal. No, that's yeah. that's a different a different different. Yeah. That's very illegal. Yeah, because it goes back to uh, Michael Jackson and Prince. You know, the question was, how did they get a hold of that stuff? Okay. That profile. Okay. Drug, no. drug companies do leave samples and stuff with doctors, though. That's not illegal, is it? They still do that, yes. Yeah, okay. Now, this is an article about talking about anal sex. Uh, and uh, one of the things that uh, has changed over the decades is talking about sexual intercourse, whether you do it vaginal or whether you do it oral or whether you do it anal. And uh, this article talks about the fact that uh, it is part of the sexual history to find out whether your patient is involved in anal or vaginal or oral sex. And uh, this is uh, from the UK. And uh, I know when I've talked with my medical students, uh, a lot of them are not recognizing that in this day and age, talking about whether you have vaginal or anal or oral sex is important. And that's just part of the normal history and physical. Although nowadays with x-rays, a lot of people aren't doing thorough history and physical examination. 
but this is something that uh, just just as for example some people i think uh, uh john uh we can mention that uh, uh many doctors no longer do an anorectal examination and that's a problem because even when they do the uh colonoscopy sometimes they don't thoroughly examine the anal rectal area and i think uh, that that's a, a mistake and the change that that we need to do away with. But uh, uh, it is important, therefore, uh, that uh, uh, the type of sex you, you engage in becomes part of the uh, uh, sexual history of the patient you, you address. And there have been many discussions about that. Yeah, among uh, young people, and I think the article says uh, 16 to 24, uh, anal sex, um, the incidence of that has about uh, doubled recently. Uh, and the other thing that's getting popular among the young is uh, oral anal sex, uh, uh, eating someone's uh, anus. Uh, and of course, there's a, you know, a lot of uh, diseases that are associated with that. Uh, this, this article talks about uh, anal trauma and incontinence uh, as being a common aftermath of anal sex, uh, which could be more problematic uh, for women because they have a more fragile uh, pelvic floor. And um, of course, you know, like uh, incontinence, that's, um, uh, that's one of the extreme consequences of anal sex. Um, they say that's the reason why uh, Kobe Bryant was involved with the rape of the woman in color in, uh, in Denver. And uh, they say that's, you know, even though she had been with two other guys the same day, that's possibly why she pressed charges the next day because uh, she found that she was incontinent after um, being with Kobe Bryant. Uh, for those who don't understand, incontinent means that they're unable to control uh, the passage of urine, urine, or, urine yeah. or right? Well, which next? Which doctor is supposed to control or question you about your sexual life? Your your uh, your family doctor. Your general, your GP. Yes. yes. Okay, again, I'll ask the question. And anybody's GP ever questioned about their sexual life? Because none of mine have ever asked me. No. Most of the older doctors are not used to doing that. But the newer generation of doctors needs to do it. And I, I, I teach all my medical students that they need to do that because the sexual history is, becomes very important. But you're right, the older doctors uh, that that was not something that was common those days and talking about uh, anal sex was not part of our education but that's that's different now as 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 uh, Daryl mentioned the uh, in, incidence of anal sex has increased markedly since then and it's and and often it's because the the male wants to do it and uh, they then introduce it to the female and so forth yeah, it's a great conversation that uh, mothers can have with their teenage children, or I'm not even sure, maybe grandmothers could have with their teenagers, because since it is becoming popular, they're not aware of the risk. 
And, um, you know, the young girls need to be told, uh, avoid this because there are some very potent physical risks associated with anal sex. I had a question, Dr. Callender, about um, uh, E. coli. Um, That's one of the uh, bacteria in in feces, right? Yes. Um, Are you, can you get sick off of your own E. coli? Uh, yes, you can if you're immunosuppressed, but usually not. Uh, if you're not taking medications to uh, uh, suppress your immune system, your own E. coli generally not a problem because they're present in the GI tract all the time. So uh, under normal circumstances, the answer would be no. But definitely somebody else's E. coli you can get really sick off of, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. E. coli is is uh, one of the commonest sources of infection. Yeah. We've got a younger generation that's being raised on porn. Even if you put all kind of uh, blocks on their cell phones and their tablets, they're looking at porn on their friends' computers, tablets, and iPhones. And a lot of the porn that they're watching is showing vaginal and anal sex and oral sex all in the same sessions and along with orgies, uh, you know, there's, there could be three ways, four ways with uh, every type of sex. And so, you know, they're watching it and it's like monkey see, monkey do. So now you get E. coli, um, uh, incontinence, STDs, uh, you get all of that. Uh, You know, you get the invitations through the internet and they're, they don't know the risk. Monkeypox, you get it? Okay, any other comment? If not, uh, this is uh, something that we have talked about in the past, but not recently. And that is that uh, environment plays a much larger role than genetics uh, in uh, psychotic experiences in adolescence. Uh, we talk about genetics often, but it's really your, your, the trauma that you uh, deal with in your day-to-day life, especially uh, socioeconomically uh, poorer people. Uh, you see your friend or, or other person being murdered. You see somebody <laughs> being traumatized or you get traumatized. These are the environmental experiences that are more likely to be associated with psychotic experiences rather than the genetic uh, issue. And uh, this is true in general anyway, because the environment does affect the gene. And so uh, your environment plays a major role in genetic profiles as well. So when we talk about psychotic experiences, a lot of it has to do with what happens to children to young people while they're growing up. And sometimes we, we forget how devastating it is for somebody to have one of their peers uh, be killed or be mur- to be traumatized, uh, beaten up or assaulted. Uh, and so this is where a lot of the psychotic behavior begins. This is interesting to me, um, uh, because in short, this speaks to the nature versus nurture argument. 
So I guess this is saying that it's more nurture than it is nature. And even though someone may have a, a you know, their, their genes may not be, uh, they may not come from the best stock. You know, it seems like, you know, the nurture can help to either, either you know, the nurture can either help with that or propel that even more. So it's interesting. This is all interesting. Yeah, I think that uh, sometimes we underestimate the importance of what happens in your environment. Uh, and we sometimes tend to put, put a lot of it on genes when in point of fact, uh, the environment, the social determinants of health play a major role in, in who you are and how you behave, mentally, physically, and otherwise. So, yeah, this, this you know, particularly speaks for, you know, kids who are adopted or, you know, uh, kids who are, you know, taken in by, by their parents, you know, taken away from homes that are less than, you know, it seems like it can give them a better start according to this argument. So that's, that's, uh, that's affirming. Any other comment? Because it's uh, it it relates to what has been uh, identified that uh, uh, even younger adults uh, that uh, a lot of what they become and a lot of their medical issues relate to the environment they were surrounded when they were much younger. And, I, and I'm sure you uh, teachers and many of you out there are teachers uh, are more familiar with that than I am. Yeah, my son is a fourth grade teacher and uh, the things that his fourth grade students do as far as like stabbing each other and, uh, and you find out that they come from families that, uh, you know, have witnessed that they witnessed all this in their not day to day life, but they witnessed it. And, uh, you know, and so they're behind the eight ball already just by, you know, where they're growing up at and what they're yeah. seeing. You know, I, I was looking at a data item that indicated that uh, 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 people of uh, color are associated with uh, homicide uh, uh, almost four times as often as those of other uh, vintages. And so if you're su surrounded by it and you see it, that uh, will affect you for the rest of your life. And uh, these bullying things that kids experience in school, as you you're mentioning, uh, affect people sometimes for the rest of their lives. And and if they don't get psychotherapy, uh, it may plague them for the rest of their lives. One one thing that I'm real quick noticing about this article is that I saw a little bit above. They said that the studies were done uh, overseas in the UK and in Sweden. Didn't see anything there. I mean, I'm just skimming it too, but I didn't see anything for the United States. So that's that. That's exactly one of the problems of a lot of the literature is that uh, we don't see a whole lot of it from the United States, and yeah. we probably have more of it than than they have. I really believe Much that. Much more yes. than, than they have. Yeah. yeah. And that that brings up to mind that you have to be very careful about all the articles you read because. <laughs> where they come from becomes important uh, and whether it can be adopted to what we experience depends upon where the study is, who does the study, and whether or not they have people of color involved in the study. Often they do not, and that's why uh, reading it, you have to look at it 
uh, from uh, that kind of perspective. Uh, and, and proper analysis requires you to, to uh, give merit or dismerit relative to whether or not it's the population we uh, have or not. Amen. <laughs> oh, this is from Carol, <laughs> because uh, she recognizes that uh, you should be doing your pedal exercises, stand up and stretch every 30 minutes. And so she put that in there. Thank you, Carol. I mean, if you didn't put it in there, whoever put it in there, thank you. But that's that's more of a Carol Tatum touch. <laughs> uh, um, now, this is an article that just talks about common decency. Uh, and uh, you have people who have all kinds of implants and when the device maker goes bankrupt or something, then what are they supposed to do? And this uh, is something that uh, kind of represents man's inhumanity to man. So you have something like this that happens and uh, these people are just left in the lurch and with nothing to do and nobody cares about it. And this is an article that wants us to be more sensitive because uh, we have a lot of people who have implants these days uh, because uh, they have arrhythmias, they have uh, uh, heartbeats that are too slow, they have fibrillation or other things, or even ventricular fibrillation. So they have these kind of implants. And then if you have a company that goes bankrupt and you don't have a way of, of uh, addressing it, then what, what are you to do? And, and this was just to uh, have us to think about. Uh, uh, because nowadays we're talking about many people uh, are alive because they have special devices. Uh, and so some people can see because of special devices. Some people live because of special devices devices. So this is an article that just uh, re requires the FDA and other groups to be sensitive to situations like this when uh, proprietary medical devices uh, uh, are no longer available. I'm sure nobody in this group has any of those devices, but uh, it's food for thought. Dr. Callan, I was wondering about these uh, commercials I see where they have the uh, the patch on their arm or their on their tummy that uh, monitors. They can put their phone up and monitor their their blood sugar. Uh, are those considered implants as well? Yes, uh, but those are so common that uh, it's likely not to be considered here. But yes, those are implants, and the diabetes ones are the commonest. And they're life-changing. I was just wondering how 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 does that affect uh, the person wearing them? I mean, can you can you uh, you know exercise, go swimming, or whatever? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Generally, the, the most most of them are done in, in a way that, that they they can protect themselves and they can uh, swim those kind of things. Uh,
Now, this is uh, an article on uh, the way things are changing now that we're becoming more COVID sensitive. And since most of us now are uh, fully immunized, it is thought that it's safer uh, to uh, not, uh, not need social distancing, quarantine, and testing as much as we used to in the past. And so this, uh, uh, the new recommendations that uh, they've made, uh, and they include uh, the fact that uh, you don't even have to quarantine uh, uh, people who are now positive. <clears throat> they should mask, but they are also uh, required to quarantine. So we've become, highly liberal in uh, 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 dealing with COVID positivity, as well as uh, uh, also nowadays, if you have a reinfection after five days, they aren't even requiring you to be retested. Although it's, it makes sense. Uh, and, and it seems that they're giving new value to your home tests. Uh, since they're now available, widely available. And, and the reason is because the likely of the need for hospitalization and death from COVID-19 is becoming less likely because most people are fully immunized. Now, of course, those who are able to suppress, it, it's, we're not, it's not quite clear what that means to them. And this, this article further talks about uh, the fact that uh, the need for quarantine <clears throat> is no longer applicable. You know, uh, Dr. Counter, the uh, PG County schools just last week or earlier this week, uh, uh, require now masking for the students in the school, public schools. Carol, you know about that? So I, I work at PG County Schools and, and yes, I, I know about that as well. Yeah, okay. So how, how, did the, how did the students respond to that? Are, are they in or are they wearing a mask on their chin? So, uh, <laughs> No, the uh, students go back uh, on the 29th, um, but yeah, at the end of last year, yeah, we, we got all kinds of um, rule breakers and, you know, folks who, you know, we have to keep reminding them to put their masks on and stuff. They, uh, so overall, there's a good mix. Um, there are certain students who are, uh, they, they are mask, you know, wearers, and then there are those who kind of just, you know, thumb their nose at the rules. So it is, you know, there are those who are, Particularly protective and those who are are kind of careless with it. So it's it's a good it's a good mix from what I've seen. Also, the parents are like that too. <laughs> so true. It's it's actually interesting. Um, I was talking to another parent, and they were saying that there were a there was a faction in Virginia whose parents were advocating for no masks, and they they were kind of getting riled up about it. They they did not want their children in, so they. 
they would do they would do the whole protesting thing and showing up to schools trying to advocate for their children not to wear masks. I mean, and it's just a faction. It wasn't everybody, but it was just it's still interesting to see that dynamic that they were getting really riled up about this issue. So it, it's become uh, quite the scene. It's very interesting to see, and a lot of it has to do with what is what is going on in your location in terms of uh, the need for hospitalization and uh, uh, or not. And uh, in DC, it seems as though things are relatively controlled. Now, this is an <laughs> article that fits right into the profile of what Dow was talking about. <laughs> Uh, in terms of it may be time to ban fits for social media. And they talk about this because there's so much going on in social media. And are the parents aware of what is going on in social media? And uh, if they are, are they happy with it? And what's even more, this study analyzed whether the kids are happy with it. And here again, uh, this is the UK you're talking about, uh, that uh, it seemed that the self-report of social media uh, looked at it and they found that the, the children were not really that happy with the social media. Uh, and so uh, the question is, uh, should uh, we continue to let our kids be exposed to social media as we have been doing? What are your thoughts about that topic? I don't have things around me, but I'm not for hardly any of the social media. I think it's all just overblown. It's crazy. I, I think uh, social media definitely has a has a place, but it's it's almost impossible to regulate. I'm with you. I think the same thing. I don't think um, it, you know you're going to stop the um, social media fad because. You know, it's just, you know, everybody uses for everything. I mean, anything you want to know, you go to the social media, you go to uh, YouTube, you go everywhere, and you can get answers to different things. And um, some of those are inaccurate answers. Well, I mean, you have to use discernment and research to be sure you're getting the right information. But uh -huh. I don't think, I don't think we're going to stop this phenomenon here. I don't think either, but I think we should. I think it's a good idea to ban it for kids at certain ages. But it's not going to happen. But I think that uh, I think the parents have a responsibility, and uh, if, if, uh, and I think the more parents are sensitive to what their kids are watching, the more important it is. So, so if you're monitoring it, then I think it's probably sensible. But if you're not monitoring it, I think it's uh, dangerous. Yeah. I've seen some uh, some children, uh, eleven and twelve year olds. Yeah that are, uh, I mean, they demand hmm. their, their, their laptops or their, uh, their iPads, their, their tablets, their phones, and they really, uh, you know, they, they're so connected over those uh, devices that uh, it, a lot of times it seems to be unhealthy. Just the, yeah. the fact that they, can't live without them nowadays, it looks like. 
Um, well, how do you ban it from youth or um, children? So I, I can speak up here. Um, so I, I have a daughter who is 11. I have a son who's 14, so they're, they're right in the thick of it, according to this article. Um, shorter answer is it's a lot of work for parents. We have to stay two steps ahead of them. Um, and, you know, so that that's a lot of, so that, especially if you're not tech savvy, that's going to be a learning curve, you know, and uh, you have to understand, you know, what it is that they're on. Um, and, and they'll still find loopholes and they'll still find ways and avenues to get around what you know, because there are such things as parental controls that you can set up on on devices and stuff, but you have to be savvy enough to understand how to enact and enable those, uh, you know, controls. So it's, it's a lot of work, you know, but, you know, having, being a parent and doing a parent thing the right way, you know, it's, it's always going to take a lot of work. Um, and, and, you know, and, and lastly, there's a difference between social media and just the internet in general, you know, because a, a lot of times we, we mix up those two terms. Um, you know, social media is uh, specific uh, apps like TikTok, like Facebook, like Twitter are, are the ones that are most popular with teens. But, you know, but looking stuff up, that's just the internet by itself. Uh, and it's, again, it's it's all... I agree with the comments that were said before, you know, we're not going to escape this, you know, if we're going to raise children the right way, it's like, we have to stay in front of it. I always ask my kids, you know, what is it that you're watching? What is it you're looking at? You know, show me the screen. Like I have to do spot checks every now and then. And, you know, yes, there's a lot of uh, monitoring, but, you know, I, I signed up to be a parent. So this, and this is the life that we're living in currently. And so this is what I have to deal with. Amen. Yeah, the comment, that's a very, very important discussion that you just had. Uh, uh, any other comments about it? Just uh, very enlightening. I applaud Mark, and I'm glad my kids have grown and gone. Well, it's these times, different, difficult times. It is. Yeah. Uh, and and the... Uh, Availability of, of of getting the true facts from on the internet and ad addressing social media and recognizing the difference is a, an important concept. But there again, I think a lot of it starts at home, like Mark said. You have to be vigilant. Yeah, it's tougher being a parent these days. Yeah. Question. <laughs> And it's even tougher to be a grandparent because I'm clueless. They come over <laughs> with this and they show me their phone. I say, that's nice, baby. I don't, I don't, you know, getting on TikTok and all of that. Um, and then if they try to educate the grandparents, the kids will be grown by then. Well, there's a lot of education that the grandkids can do to the grandparents. Uh, uh, in one of our research projects, that's one of the things we did. We used the grandkids to educate the grandparents. So they learned how to use the uh, 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 social media uh, because I, I think it's an important uh, cog to get together the grandparents and the, and the children so that uh, uh, we actually expected 
the grandkids to educate the grandparents and help them to uh, be medically responsible. Uh, that was part of the research project and it worked well uh, as the kids uh, uh, did uh, educate their grandparents, and teach them how to use uh, the internet and other things. Not TikTok and those things, but the internet. Yeah, the, well, there was one, my granddaughter, I think it was Mark's daughter, uh, daughter uh, they had a threat at their school and somebody, Mark can explain it better than I can, but somehow the message jumped from their phone to everybody's phone in the building about a bomb threat or something like that. And you had to have an iPhone for this message to be delivered to everybody and the school was shut down and everything. And I just thought, wow, that's amazing. And every kid almost got it on their cell phone. Right. Message right. About it. That's right. That's the way it is today. So, yeah. Also, uh, kids have, have a whole uh, other language that they use, uh, the coded language, so they can communicate without their parents even knowing what they're talking about. That's true. I, as a grandparent, I and my grandson lives with me, so whenever I need some advice about something, I'll call him in because I know some of the stuff I'm not tech savvy to do. So that learning from grandchildren is truly right. <laughs> yeah. Um, this uh, next article talks about uh, some of the ways that they discriminate against us. Uh, <clears throat> this is interesting because they uh, had denied some of the black NFL retirees because they uh, just described race norming in the dementia taste testing, uh, which uh, was unfair. And as a consequence, they uh, sued and actually won. Uh, but uh, it's amazing the many ways in which they discriminate against people of color, uh, uh, whether they're uh, Latino or African-American or, or whatever. And, and this is an instance in which uh, they took advantage of uh, their so-called racial norming. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, being someone who doesn't believe in uh, using race for anything, uh, uh, this is a, an example of where they used that so-called racial norming to deny uh, African-American players from getting the uh, funds that they needed for retirement. This is a kind of a awful situation to be associated with, but that's what actually happened. And since most of the, I guess the majority of players in the NFL are uh, people of athletes of color, so it's a problem. So it's good that they recognize this and did away with it. Now, what is deceptive is they talk about a billion dollars in claims about if you actually know anything about uh, the NFL and the NBA, a uh, billion dollars is not, is, is some change to them. They, they operate in the multi-billion dollar level.
Okay, it's 10.30 now, I guess. Uh, is there any more? Is this the last article? Yes, that's, that's it. This is it. Okay. All right. Uh, so we had an interesting uh, array of articles from, and I think we had a great discussion and it's nice to see most people back. I see Janice isn't back yet. So uh, I hope she's well. And uh, I don't see Pearlene Freeman day either. But anyway, glad to all of those of you who could, could attend. And if there are any other questions that you want to have before we close out? Uh, by the way, on September the 8th, uh, Dr. Uh, Chinloy, the ophthalmologist from Howard is going to give us a talk about uh, the senior eye problems. And those of you who uh, go to your ophthalmologist every two years, uh, and those who don't can uh, hear something about the eye problems that seniors have. That's people over uh, 50 for some and over 60 for others. All right. Okay, with that, if there's no other questions, it's, thank you for participating and we look forward to having a good weekend and see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.